Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. This episode will be focusing mainly on the Grand Prix of Barcelona from the Circuit of Catalonia, just outside Montmelo in northern Spain. Uh, my name is Neil Morrison. You can find me on Twitter at neilmorrison87. And with me this week is... David Emmett. Um, you can find me on Twitter at MotoMatters. Okay, so bit of a smaller squad operating this weekend as uh, two of our usual guests are in the Isle of Man for the TT. Um, so it's just David and myself at the moment. Uh, this is Monday night after the after the, the, the post-race test that we're speaking. Um, but really, before we get to anything on track, uh, the weekend was dominated principally by the, the sad and tragic death of uh, Louis Salom on Friday evening, Friday afternoon, um, after an incident in, the, in Moto2 FP2, um, which was... Really, a, a difficult moment to to take in, David. Yeah, it was a it was a very dark moment. It's the second time I've been in the paddock when a death has happened. It's my uh, it's my third death in MotoGP, which sounds absolutely terrible, and frankly, it is it really is terrible. It was a freakish accident. It was a really really strange crash. It was a strange crash in a strange place. Um, the medical squad got there very, very quickly, tried to save him, but, um, uh, I mean, uh, I, I believe that Luis didn't actually die at the circuit, but was transported to, to the hospital. They were trying to do everything to save him, but, um, uh, he, it was just, he was very, very unlucky. Um, uh, crashed in a, stay, in a, in a strange place, um, was sliding into a tire wall, uh, but his tire wall, the, his bike hit, hit the tire wall before him and bounced straight back into him, um, hit him in the chest and that was, uh, uh, just suffered massive, massive internal injuries. It was, it was a very, uh, it was a very, very black moment. I think we were just, Heading into, um, because normally what happens during most of two FP2 is we are all out in the paddock, uh, running around, uh, talking to riders because the riders, the MotoGP riders start speaking to the press immediately after the, uh, after, uh, their session of free practice in FP2. Um, Motor 2 is going on at the time. So normally you've got the Motor 2 bikes going around. And I remember walking into the LCR uh, hospitality to talk to, um, Cal Crutchlow, we were going, we were going to his, to, to Cal's debrief and they just uh, showed there was a red flag incident and, you know, it, it'd been, it looked like it was a bit of a nasty accident. No one really knew what was going on until quite a bit later. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the, the severity of the incident only became apparent, um, the further along the afternoon yeah. we went. Um, we spoke to several riders and they kind of made it clear that, um, you know, their, their thoughts were primarily with Lewis. Um, but yeah, whenever, I think whenever we heard that the, the, the remainder of the, the Moto 2 free practice session had been cancelled, it's very, very rare that you hear, uh, something like that happening. And I think then we kind of realized that it must be quite serious. Yeah. Um, also the fact that they, the, the helicopter had landed in the corner because it, I mean, uh, when a rider is injured, uh, badly enough that he can't, that he can't get up and walk off himself, they will, uh, ride, they will drive the ambulance out to the corner and load a rider into, into an ambulance, take them to the medical center. Usually that's just, you know, a, a broken leg, broken foot, something like that, broken arm might be whatever. Um, but they flew the, uh, they flew the helicopter out to that corner, landed it in the corner, and were waiting to transport it. In the end, um, 
they didn't use the helicopter to to transport him because uh, he was so um, uh, he was so seriously injured that they needed to be able to continue doing CPR and trying to trying to you know doing every do everything to save his life. Um, and there's just a lot more room to do that in a in an ambulance rather than a, in a helicopter. And they, I think the, the the hospital is actually in Valles or something. It's 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 ten minutes away, so it's not as if um, it, it's not as if you would actually save that much time by 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 flying in there. It was much more important to actually be able to keep treating Luis and and, and try to save his life. Unfortunately, you know his, his injuries were just too much. Yeah, and it was it was kind of in that um, you know twenty thirty minute period of when, as you say, when we were at the debriefs, that you know riders, MotoGP riders were were almost asking us for information to see yeah, whether we yeah, had found out anything. Yeah. And yeah, it could, was it was the first subject of conversation. Whenever you walked in somewhere, it was, "Have you heard anything? Have yeah, you heard anything?" Yeah, and then really, what I could you know see from that was just you know how. How, how worried, uh, you know, how vulnerable many yeah. of the riders looked in, in yeah. that kind of situation as they, they tried to take the news in, tried to comprehend what had happened and, uh, you know, basically made it completely aware or made them aware of, you know, the kind of the risk that they're 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 taking every day and um maybe they they put to the back of their mind this was kind of forcing them yeah. to actually contemplate that and consider that yeah i mean that, that was the interesting thing because you could see the vulnerability at that moment uh the, the next day i mean we'll, we'll get to sort of the sequence of events in a minute but but the next day when we were talking to um uh, talking to the riders obviously the subject came up it's not something you could not talk about uh, we talked about, uh, you know, the, the danger they faced and, and every single one of them said, yeah, yeah, we know, we know it could happen to everyone. Um, but you try not to think about it. You don't, you, you can't afford to think about it. You just get on and you, you just get on, get on and do it. You just think, oh, it, it won't happen to me. It'll be fine. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the rest of the day, day's events were cancelled and then there was a meeting of the safety commission and um, the meeting of the safety commission which actually took much much longer than normal yeah exactly um i think at first well um i think i'd heard that uh, following lewis at the time of his accident was uh, miguel Oliveira, and you yeah. had you'd been speaking to someone in the in the leopard team um and that person had said that uh, miguel would not be happy to continue racing no 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 but no because miguel uh, 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 Oliveira was was following uh, was following salom uh, he saw the crash happen in front of him what happened was um uh, salom crashed he crashed in a very very strange place he crashed way off the normal racing line on the outside of the racing line uh, at uh, turn 12 which was also complicated because the riders were using a different uh, turn numbering system to the one that the journalists were using, so it, it all got very, very complicated. But anyway, um, Oliveira was following Salom. Um, uh, Salom was, he, he got one corner wrong, uh, turn, uh, turn 10, turn 11 got, uh, got it wrong. He was way offline, uh, and he crashed on the outside of the, uh, uh, on the outside of the line, uh, going into turn 12, and he slid straight on there is a, a a fairly narrow strip of asphalt there which hasn't been covered in uh, uh covered in gravel which is what they do at some tracks um it's only well, i don't know what maybe 10 meters wide or something so it's not it, it's not particularly wide but it was the, the trajectory from his crash put him straight onto the uh, onto the onto the tarmac and he just didn't slow down and uh well not only did he not slow down but there was nothing to split him from his bike normally what happens when a bike uh, crashes because the bike has a different shape and is uh, and is heavier um the trajectories of a uh, 
rider and a motorcycle will diverge. That means that the you don't you, you don't very often get hit by your bike. You are going you're you're going in a different direction, but the bike went in exactly the same direction as him. Hit the uh, hit the air fence which was there uh, since Antonelli's crash in 2014. Uh, bounced off and and unfortunately hit Salom, and that was uh, those were the injuries that we, which he ended up dying from. Absolutely, yeah. So as you already mentioned, there was, a, uh, I think, Carmelo Espaleta, the CEO of Dorna, the organizers of, of MotoGP, uh, kind of met with, um, with with members of the, the MotoGP Safety Commission. Yeah. Um, j- just to make clear, Espaleta is in every safety commission. He's, he's there every uh, Friday, 5.30 um, uh, in the Dorna offices. It is um, uh, Carmelo Espaleta. It is uh, Race Direction, which is Mike Webb. Uh, usually the FIM sa- um, uh, safety officer, which is Franco Uncini, and then um, um, almost well any MotoGP rider which wants to come, uh, plus Moto2 and Moto3 riders if they have a very specific issue that they want to talk about. It's very rare. It's very rare that a Moto2 or a Moto3 rider will actually will actually be there. Yeah. So I think uh, the chain of events that followed uh, Lewis's accident and then the announcement of his death, um, the the riders they understood that Louis Salom, um, his family, uh, give their kind of blessing for the, the race weekend to continue. And once they learned of that, they then decided, you know, that perhaps there is a, an alternative layout that the Formula One race uses at the Montmelo circuit, um, which includes a, a chicane uh, just after turn 12 where Louis crashed. So the bikes are going through turn 12 a lot slower. Um, and they decided that this could actually be an option for the race to make it a little bit safer, uh, to slow the bikes down through turn 12. And Espeleta's um, explanation to us on Saturday was that uh, although it was a freak accident and it was very very rare you know for something like that to happen if it can happen once then you don't want to risk it happening again so it's it's worth making the changes just uh, just to be sure um, so I think uh, they unanimously agreed that um, that they should they should then alter the the, the, the layout of the circuit and introduce the Formula One layout um, and that included changes not only to turn 12 including the, the chicane at the end of the lap but also changes to turn 10, which is the, uh, the the kind of the hairpin at the end of the back straight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the, the, the MotoGP layout, the, the the bike layout, it's a very very long round corner. It's a fantastic corner. Um, uh, the riders all went because they wanted to go and survey the the the, uh, the situation. So they all actually drove out and they wandered around the various bits and pieces. Uh, they also saw uh, saw some video because obviously Dorna has a complete archive of all the video. They saw uh, went and looked at the uh, uh, crashes at turn twelve. They also looked at crashes at turn ten, and they saw that a lot a lot of riders were actually coming off there uh, and uh, reaching the barrier, um, not with sufficient force to be injured, but if you can reach the barrier. Um, then basically it means there's not, that there's not enough runoff there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. they decided also because there is this alternative uh, layout there, which is much more of it, the, the corner is a little bit earlier and it's much, much sharper. So entry speeds are much, um, uh, are much slower. And uh, they, they, they decided they would also change the, uh, change the layout there. Absolutely. And several riders used the example of Marquez's crash in the 2015 race at turn 10, uh, where basically he messed up his braking marker completely, had to run straight on and then, you know, saw the, the wall fast approaching. And rather than try and save his bike in the gravel when he was upright, had to just lay it down because of fear of, of, obviously reaching that wall um so i think bradley bradley smith uh, just um, summed it up summed up the reason why they they decided to change turn 10 quite well he just said you know we're 
after a time like this, we're trying to preempt another possible, you know, serious incident, you know, so they wanted just to cover their bases and they thought, well, if this is available to us, then why not make it as safe as possible as it can possibly be? Yeah, exactly. Why take a risk? Why change one corner uh, and leave another corner uh, possibly open to uh, possibly open to danger? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess before we go on, I mean, uh, Louis Lom was competing in Moto2 this year. I think it was his third year in the class. Um, he had come very close to winning a, a Moto3 World Championship in 2013. Um, came within a race, really, of, of winning that championship. Um, you know, what, what are your, your memories of, of Louis going to be? Well, I mean, Sir Lom, he was a fiery character. He rode for a uh, for the Dutch RW racing team. So I have a little bit more contact with him than, than with a lot of 125 and Moto3 riders. Because I don't make the effort to, I don't make the effort that I should to to to, to actually invest time and, and get to know. Him. But I mean that uh, that 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 championship with uh, Salon, I think it was Silla, Salon Vinales and Miller, uh, Rins. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. I mean it was just um, it was a fantastic it was a fantastic year to be watching Mark the Three as it so often was. Um, uh, to me, uh, Salon was a really really fiery character. Um, he had to have a, when he had the right people around him. I mean, the year that he was his, his championship year was he was with Aki Ayo, who's been so successful at uh, getting riders to uh, at creating the right environment around uh, around rider. And the RW racing team had been very, quite successful. He'd got some. He'd got. I think he'd got a couple of wins in one two five for uh, for the all podiums perhaps. Model two, uh, model three. Was it was it, was it yeah, Moto yeah. three? Yeah, it was the first I year. I can't Moto remember. If, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. Two wins I can't remember. Year. It was two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But yeah, two thousand and twelve. It was first year model two. Sorry, first year model three. Sorry, there you go. I've been doing this. I've been <laughs> too long. I'm getting all my years to. Oh, 2010 was Moto Two. Yeah, 2010 yeah, was Moto Two. Yeah, yeah exactly. So 2012. Yeah, so Cortez won it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, they put. I mean, the other Russian team. It was the first year of uh, first year of Moto Three when they were with him. They sort of uh, they they sort of started to extract some of the talent that was in there. Um, when he went to Aki. Mm. Uh, they really that, that that was a really big difference. That was uh, I mean you know he he took Salom and and you know made him aware of what his potential was. Sure, sure. Uh, it his potential never really. I mean he moved up to he, when he moved up to Moto Two, uh, he struggled. I mean he had the bad luck to be to, uh, to have first Maverick Vinales as a teammate, uh, and then um, uh, Alex Rins as a teammate. He did. Quite well in Moto in Moto Two, but he didn't make the the, the same transition that both Vinales and Rins did, um, and therefore he was almost measured against those two guys, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, because yeah. he had been fighting them in the Moto Three yeah, Championship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, know? it's a little bit like being, um, uh, you know, it's a bit like being Colin Edwards and, and ending up as as Valentino Rossi's teammate. You know, it's a uh, uh, that there were fairly high standards. So um, yeah, I mean, he was um, uh, plus the. I mean, the one thing I never understood about Louis, Louis Salon was um, his affinity for shocking pink, because he always had shocking pink helmets and shocking pink numbers and all the rest of it. Um, and it was almost it, um, a strange kind of synchronicity because the uh, 
at every race you have a uh, a one event what they call a one event pass so you have a pass to go to a particular race and um it's a little plastic card and and it sits on a lanyard around the neck and the lanyard the, the lanyard is is a different color for each particular race and uh, the lanyard for the Catalonia race just happened to be shocking pink just happened to be Salom's color which was um i don't know some sometimes sort of a strange sort of synchronicity yeah sure exactly and i think um when jorge navarro will maybe speak about this a little bit later in the show whenever he won the moto 3 race on on uh, on sunday that was his first win in that class in his first win in grand prix in fact he just happened to be the 39th uh, spanish winner of a grand yeah. prix which yeah. is also a strange kind of synchronicity yeah i mean the, 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 in, in the actual races there was there was um there were some really nice um some really touching things yeah uh, Barger riding uh, riding around with pit board with 39 with 39 on sure. uh, uh Mark Marquez reversing his uh, his race numbers which was well, I thought was really cool yeah um you know from 93 to 39 so yeah I mean there was um uh, I think the celebrations after the race were to me were I mean Luis Salon was a man full of uh, energy it was a very dynamic person all motorcycle races are they they're, they're, they're very active they're very dynamic and the, the the celebrations of him were were very dynamic active celebrations of a man's life which is to me the best way to honor a person is to celebrate their life rather than mourn their death sure sure and certainly the riders that we spoke to that, that knew louis quite well uh, all of them said that Knowing Louis and uh, knowing the kind of character he was, they, they, they Louis would have wanted things to continue. I know it's it's you know all well saying that, but yeah. they, you know they they were very much of the of the opinion and assertion that that he would have wanted things to have continued as they did this weekend. Um, yeah, I think my abide memory of, of Louis would be that 2013 season you spoke of with uh, with Aki Ayo. Um, I think going into the, the penultimate round of that year, he was. He had a five-point championship lead, and it was um, Isaac Vinales, I think, took him out in Motegi in the penultimate oh, yeah, race. Yeah. And obviously, life is full of these ips and buts moments, but that is a moment that you know you'll probably look back on and think, if that didn't happen, yeah, you know, it very you know, he very well could have been a, a Moto Three world champion. Um, there were several moments in that year where I remember he just seemed to have perfected that art of timing his attack in in, in the big massive gaggle that you usually see in the final lap of yeah. Moto Three race. Timing that to perfection as winning Silverstone that year was really something quite special. And I remember thinking after that race that he was definitely going to win the championship, you know, and a few things kind of contrived against him against the, eventually in that, in that series. Um, but then as you say, you know, some good years in Moto 2, I think he was on the podium in this third Moto 2 race, which yeah. was quite impressive. Yeah. And then, you know, he was on the podium in Qatar. And obviously there was a bit of confusion in that race. A few guys got there, uh, yeah. right through penalties. But, uh, I remember him saying after that race in the, in the, the, the press conference afterwards, or maybe it was on TV, he was saying that, uh, he had spoken to his mum prior to that race and she said, Lewis, you know, you seem to have, you know, you seem to have forgotten how to enjoy racing. Where's the smile? I don't see you smile in the pit box. And he said, okay, well, what I need to do is just learn to enjoy it again and, and, uh, you know, be, be more happy and appreciate what I'm doing. And I think that's quite, uh, quite a good memory to have of him, uh, yeah. as we go forward. Yeah. So. Um, so I guess it was it was really difficult for everyone to kind of show up on Saturday morning. Um, yeah, because I mean we we've had uh, like I said that this is a horrible expression. This is my third death in the paddock. Uh, the last time Tommy Zaw was the last time that I was actually in the paddock when it happened. Uh, then after that we had Simoncelli, but both of those happened on race day, and so uh, the, the the aftermath 
of a fatal accident. It, everything happens in a bit of a haze. Um, when it happens on a Sunday, you go away and you sort of you're a little bit confused. You don't really know what's going on. But then you know we went home. Um, what happened for what happened here? Because it happened on Friday. We had you know two, a, a day of qualifying and a day of the race. Mm. That made things uh, a lot more difficult, a lot more um, emotional. Also, there was the atmosphere. Well, I mean, it was strange how the atmosphere sort of built towards race day because I mean, Friday morning it was really quiet. I've never been in a in a paddock so quiet. Everyone was very very restrained. On Saturday morning. On Saturday, yes, sorry, Saturday morning. Yes, Saturday morning. Um, everyone was very quiet. Everyone, all the conversations were in hushed tones. Everyone was speaking quietly. Everyone, um, there was a lot, there was a lot of, uh, there was one moment when we were standing there waiting, uh, I think talking to Aleish Espargaro, uh, the Suzuki's and Maverick Vinales came up because he speaks directly after Aleish. And, uh, when, um, Maverick came in, he just came in and touched, um, Aleish. They touched each, you know, they, they you know, touched each other's hands. It was, um, that kind of contact was there was there on Saturday. Um, by Sunday, things had sunk in a little bit, and then the races. I think uh, in the races, everyone realised the reason Luis Salom gave his life, that or was prepared to risk his life, um, was because of the thrill of racing, because of the excitement that racing gives you. The motorcycle racing, there's nothing like it. There's nothing which makes you feel so alive uh, as a motorcycle race, and these were. Fantastic races. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, Paul Espargaro put it nicely. He said, you know, the job that we do is that we try to give some adrenaline to the people. You know, they yeah. watch us to feel the adrenaline that, that we have coursing through our bodies when we're racing. And and uh, we kind of, we saw that really um, in each of the three races. Yeah. Um, Moto3 yeah. Moto and MotoGP in particular were, were, were fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I guess race day was the, the first time that everything started to feel or started to have some semblance of normality after yeah a, i mean we, we obviously we had the minute of silence and the minute of silence that was, it was again it was a moment everyone was together um there was lots of people down on the grid um uh, obviously not even everyone can make it just be, just physically it's just it's just not possible um there are a lot of people up in the in the, in the stands it was uh, i went down it was um touching it was very quiet it was very but there was a sense of togetherness there was a sense of okay um let's remember Luis and you know move on uh move on and 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 you know he'll ride with us when we go racing sure absolutely absolutely so after the incident on Friday, um, riders had all of Saturday to to adapt to the new layout. Um, initially, it looked like it had kind of swung the balance of power. Um, both Yamahas looked very, very strong on Friday afternoon. Yeah, Lorenzo um, Ross. Well, Barcelona is very much a Yamaha mm, track because absolutely. of because of those long sweeping corners. It, sure. it, it, it really is, um, and it really looked like it was going to be Lorenzo versus Rossi, mm. and and Lorenzo was looking incredibly incredibly strong. Exactly, yeah, and you could even throw Vinales in there for good measure. I think yeah. he was looking great. But then obviously we add in another very very slow section uh, where riders have to basically go through a flip flop chicane in first gear, really not made for a MotoGP bike at all. Um, and suddenly we start to see Mark Marquez and Danny Pedrosa uh, towards the sharp end of the top of the timesheets. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed to have taken the edge off of 
um, uh, Honda's problem so far this year, although it's a, it's a, it's also it's a problem they fixed a little bit, which uh, both Mark and Danny admitted to uh, during the race weekend. They had some some bits and pieces to test. Um, they bought some Honda had bought some new electronics to the race, um, and uh, the. Uh, the electronics works quite well, and, and so the, the, the Honda's already accelerating a little bit better. Um, but the way that the, the 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 way that the circuit changed the entry into the final corner, they were actually entering a little bit slower. But because it was a wider uh, it was a wider line, it was easier to get drive uh, out of that final corner for the Hondas. Um, whereas in the old layout, you you entered tighter. It was a faster corner, but you entered tighter, and so they were having more problems with their the traditional Honda problem of uh, you know the rear wheel spinning up and bike wanting to wheelie and not being a, 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 to get the kind of acceleration that um, uh, the bikes do. And so, yeah, I mean that really seemed to make a big difference for the Honda, and uh, you know obviously Mark Marquez, Portina, absolutely astonishing lap to take pole on um, uh, on Saturday he was faster I think he was faster on the slow uh, F1 layout uh, than Bradley Smith had been on the fast um, uh, MotoGP layout that we used on Friday that we yeah. used on Friday so yeah. it was uh, I mean it, 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 to go that fast on that layout was just astonishing. Yeah, yeah, and it really looked like uh, on Saturday evening that Marquez was going to be dancing off into the distance. Yeah, we we spoke to Rossi on on Saturday evening. He was saying that uh, his pace up was okay in the medium rear tire, but uh, as soon as he fitted the hard, which basically uh, the only option that he felt uh, was a viable option for the race, for the twenty five laps, was the hard option. He said he just lost about a second and a half of pace, and therefore they had a lot of work to do. Um, neither his nor Lorenzo's pace looked particularly strong you know, at no. all on Saturday. No. They seemed to have lost all of that kind of advantage that they had the day before. And um, yeah, Honda looked like they were going into the race in very strong shape indeed. Yeah, it, it, they did. They did indeed. And then, I mean, at the start of the race, what happens? Lorenzo gets the whole shot and you think, okay, that's it. The race is done. They found something in the morning. Um but I mean, having there's more to winning the race. You don't win the way, win the race in the first corner, as they say. Yeah. Um, uh, and despite the fact that he led in the first corner and was actually quite strong in the first few laps, uh, it all started going horribly wrong for Lorenzo as the race started to progress after what six, seven laps, something like that. Yeah, more or less. I think as soon as he lost the lead to Rossi. He soon lost second place to Marquez, um, maybe within a couple of corners. And from there, basically, his race was run. You could just see that, uh, you know, the, the awesome sort of super confident, easygoing, flowing, smooth lines that Lorenzo normally has. He looked like he was riding on marbles. And you could see, yeah, you could see even his body, his body language was just very awkward on top of the bike. And you could just see that he was going to go backwards. Yeah, ex exactly. Basically, as soon as he lost the edge grip, which he, which, which is his advantage is mm. to use the, 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 the edge grip to carry corner speed. As soon as he lost that, he was trying everything he could to try and figure out, uh, you know, a way to ride around it. Yeah. Um, couldn't do it. Yeah. And, um, he, he really, he really was going backwards. He was yeah. just, I mean, he was absolutely plummeting. It was just, it was, uh, it was just so strange to see a man of Lorenzo's ability and yeah. speed around this track in particular going yeah. so slow. And it was almost like a repeat of Argentina yes. where he just saw the leaders going off into the distance and couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, but 
unlike Argentina, where he admitted he got a little bit frustrated, uh, impatient, and just lost his head, essentially. Uh, his undoing was uh, was not of his own. Uh, no, it, it was an, another rider who is uh, who has developed a reputation for losing his head. Uh, although, the, I mean, to be perfectly fair to Andrea Iannone, this time, um, uh, the I mean, we spoke to Davide Tardotti afterwards, and um, he said, you know, this isn't this isn't like Argentina. This was, you know, it was it was just a small mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, the data showed that Andrea Iannone breaks in exactly the same place as. Uh, as he normally bra- uh, breaked, it's just that uh, um, Lorenzo was taking such a different line. He was um, uh, I th- again. I think I can't. I can't remember. It was, it was Paul. Paul. Uh, yeah, Paul was sitting behind him when the accident happened, and he, and he was saying, you know, uh, normally what Lorenzo does is he he starts to break early. Um, and lets the break off very early and carries a lot of corner speed through uh, through the corner, which mm. is what what gives him his advantage. Yeah, one of his great strengths. Yeah, especially absolutely. with the Michelin front. Es- yeah, especially with the Michelin front, and also um, you know when he had the right type, well, the right rear bridge turn, then he was it, it was actually it was exactly the same thing. Um, he couldn't do that with the with the problems he was having with the with the Michelin fronts at uh, um, at Barcelona, and so he. Um, was starting to break later, but then he was holding the brake much for much further into the corner, and so he was going much much more slowly than Ian only was expecting. Mm. And Ian only realised, like, oh, you know, God, this is you know what's happening. But the mistake he made was that he tried to move to the inside sure, rather than sure. move to the outside. Yeah. Um, and the the well, the example that both uh, uh, Tardotti and um, uh, Paulus Bargro gave was. If you if the if you're on the motorway and the bloke in front of you slams on his brakes and you slam into the back of him, it's your fault. Yeah. So it's not. Uh, I mean, it it wasn't a particularly terrible, um, and it wasn't it wasn't a, an act of stupidity or or, or, or evilness. It was just an uh, honest racing incident. It was an honest. Well, yeah, it was a racing incident, but you know, um, there. There are once you start having uh, a racing incident every week, then people start to start to think that the problem is you and not uh, and not someone else. Exactly, yeah. And I think, although what you said is 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 perfectly viable, uh, there were a few riders that said that you know once you what Lorenzo was doing was not like a, a sudden thing. This was kind of no, exactly. It was, it was increasing lap by lap, and I yeah, think, exactly. I, think Paul, I mean, it, it was perfectly obvious. And the yeah. other thing is, there was no reason for Ian Oni to be, uh, you know, to be particularly preci- precipitate because he was seven tenths quicker the lap before. Yeah, exactly. And there was uh, nine laps to go. That's right. It, like it, that, it so. reminded me a lot of Simicelli and, and Le Mans when Pedroza. yeah, with Pedrosa, which was two thousand eleven. Yeah, that's right, two thousand eleven, which was basically Simicelli was catching Pedrosa so fast, um, he made a. Stupid. That was that was a proper stupid pass. He made a stupid pass when it was when it just absolutely wasn't necessary. Mm. Um, he could have made much past. He could have waited half a lap and passed him in the straight easily. Yeah. Um, but he didn't. You know, uh, made a risky pass and uh, and took uh, took Pedrosa out. Again, Ian only could have just you know bided his time. Could have could have sat behind him because it was literally it, it wouldn't. Have, by the time they crossed the line. He would have been ahead of him. He wouldn't have been. It, it wouldn't have been a problem. But um, uh, impatience, uh, a lack of uh, uh, a lack of proper planning. Um, he Ianoni is not. Um, um, 
He's not known for his uh, uh, long-term strategic thinking. No, exactly. And and this is quickly turning into quite a disastrous season, uh, a season which had yeah. so much promise after uh, after a, a wonderful 2015, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had a really strong t- 2015, had a good start to 2016. We were talking about the, the, the question was not, uh, you know, uh, yeah. how many podiums or, it, mm. or, or, you know, could he maybe get a win? It's like, you know, so how many races do we think it's going to be before he gets a win? Sure. And um, he keeps and on running into people. Exactly. And and both his and Dobby's speed is somewhat mirroring 2015 as yeah. well. And if that is if that trend continues on into the season, Ducati, the Ducati riders have, have missed their, have missed the boat in terms of the best opportunities to win a race. Yeah. In Qatar, uh, potentially in Austin or in Argentina. But anyway, we're speaking a lot about Ianone and Lorenzo. Really, the the, the, the biggest action, uh, the, the biggest talking point was at the front of the track, uh, because we had Valentino Rossi um, making his way through to the front from a average, a decent start, but a pretty bad first corner. I think he was mired uh, by eighth or ninth after the first corner coming into the the first sector of the first lap um mark marquez was at the front inside i think the first two for pretty much the the whole race yeah and as soon as rossi made his way to the front i think he was within seven laps he was in the lead uh marquez went with him and as we entered the last five laps a classic duel was was on the cards yeah absolutely i mean you could see that uh, i i think the commentary Throughout um, uh, in the, the the press room commentary amongst uh, uh, amongst the journalists or throughout was you know Marquez is biding his time because he just sat there. I don't think he was ever more than about five or six tenths behind uh, behind Rossi at any point during that period. Um, sat there right on the tail of right on the tail of Rossi, and you just thought, okay, he's waiting, he's biding his time, he's waiting, he's waiting for him. This is. Um, uh, and especially what had, given what had happened in, in qualifying, we thought it's just a matter of time before he, uh, uh, b- before he, you know, takes off basically. Um, and that isn't quite how it panned out. I mean, almost as soon as Mark, uh, attempted a pass, Valentino was having nothing, none of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning just before that, that, um, uh, I think we were speaking as the race was going on. Uh, there was a moment where Mark was passed by Valentino. Um, and rather than trying to go straight back at him, he just sat behind for a few laps and sat, sat behind for several laps. Yeah. And we were, we were saying that had that been last year, Mark would have almost definitely tried to retake the position straight away and, and maybe take a, an, unnecessary risk yeah and you know do something a bit silly as he did in several races last year yeah this time however he played the long game he waited until the final four or five laps and uh you know it was a fantastic battle really up until i think the final the penultimate lap at uh turn seven the s curve at the bottom of the hill made a little mistake there and then i think he realized okay exactly because uh, i think a couple of laps before while he was actually following rossi he made uh, he almost Completely lost the uh, uh, completely lost the front yeah. going through uh, going through the chicane. I just remember him seeing. Um, uh, I think he saved it on his elbow. But the, the picture I have of me uh, that I'd noticed he'd lost it was he had his knee stuck right out. Like, well, you know, like uh, uh, like me pretending to get my knee down. <laughs> it was that sort of like comedic uh, uh, comedic effect that he'd, he'd obviously just lever just leave his his bike back up off of his appendages um, uh, managed to save it 
the most amazing thing was I don't think I don't think he lost any ground at all to Rossi throughout that entire moment. So um, so yeah, I mean he'd had one warning and then he had a, he had another warning at uh, turn seven um, and decided you know what twenty points will do exactly um, and just let Valentino go and um, it was it was I mean I thought that Mark Marquez rode an absolutely astounding race. Um, and for Valentino Rossi to beat Mark Marcus like that, just absolutely astonishing. Just absolutely, uh, you know, as good as it gets. Sure. Yeah, and you could pretty much say that there's six out of seven races now where we could say Mark has been outstanding. He really is riding, I think, you know, as well as he was in 2014 when he had that 10 in a row run. Yeah. Because this year it's just so clear watching that the bike is not what it should be. Yeah. And, and he's still managing to get a podium pretty much every race. Bar in Le Mans, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that issue. That's the other. That is the other thing with uh, with Mark is uh, it, it, last year. What he learnt last year was um, you can try and win races all the time, but if you if you keep falling off, then you're not going to win yeah. a championship. Yeah. Uh, so he has learned, and and I think you know it it, it causes him physical pain to not win yeah. when when he thinks there might be a chance of it. But, uh, especially in front of a home crowd. Yeah, especially yeah, in front sure. of his home crowd. Yeah. yeah, especially in front of his home crowd. But, but I think he played this brilliantly because whenever Lorenzo went out, his team put on the board straight away that, that, that Lorenzo was out. And obviously those two were substantially ahead of Rossi in the championship yeah. race at this point. And you thought, okay, Marquez only needs to finish second and he'll take the, the championship lead. He hassled Rossi up until the point where he thought, okay, this is literally impossible. Yeah. And, and then at that point he said, okay, I'll, I'll settle for second. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was just a very, uh, another very mature showing from from him yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of maturity i mean uh, mr maturity valentino rossi i think he, that that win was all about experience and maturity and uh, again he was having he was having problems on saturday um uh, couldn't get a pace couldn't get couldn't get the hard uh, tire to work they found a way to uh, to make the hard tire work and he managed uh, he managed his tires all the way home and still had you know something left yeah, mm. in the bag by the time in the past couple in the in the last few laps. Yeah, and his experience. I remember when we were at um, uh, Jerez, I went out with uh, John Laverty around the track uh, to talk about. Uh, you know, he, he was talking. He was spotting for Eugene, talking about the things he was saying. He was at the, even then. I think that was, this was FP three. He was sort of like saying, "You can really see that um, Valentino was working on tire uh, conservation. Mm. Uh, he was listening to where he was sh where he was shifting. And th again, this was a perfect example of of, of tire con uh, conservation. He saved uh, not just his rear tire but also his front tire. Yeah. So he's doing something with his riding style, whatever it might uh, whatever it might be, to save some of the edge grip. Sure. And that as um, uh, that's what allowed him to push so hard all the way uh, to the end. Mm. Uh, I spoke to Wilco Zielenberg afterwards on uh, on. Sunday night and what the Wilco said was basically the difference in setup between the two bikes between uh, Rossi's bikes and, and Lorenzo's bike was absolutely minimal there was mm. you know uh, little details little preference bits and pieces but it was basically it was more or less the same mm. sort of bike which, uh, which, which was the case throughout a lot of last year as well yeah 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 exactly exactly and yet um uh lorenzo was going backwards mm. and rossi was uh, was going forward so you know they would have finished yeah. 20 30 seconds apart on identical bikes identical um uh, uh identical setup more or less yeah uh, and it was just a question of my riding style and 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 understanding how the how, how 
tires wear on very low grip surfaces like that because mm. it seems that that Lorenzo's very high corner speed style um, on a low grip uh, track it seems to wear tires more um, or stress tires more somehow or other. Sure, sure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I think you you only have to listen to what Lorenzo was saying on Sunday evening. He said that Rossi was riding unbelievably. And yeah, it was an unbelievable performance from him because he just could not understand how he was able to make the most of that front tire. Lorenzo yeah. was suffering severe grinning basically from from the early laps, as we as we already mentioned. But Rossi, as you said, was able to adjust uh, almost lap by lap to to kind of get the best out of it. And I think in the the final two laps. Um, everyone's lap times had, had dropped into the, the one minute 48, one minute 49s, even one minute 50s, I think in yeah, some cases. Was, they, yeah, people uh, were doing 50s yeah, and 51s, yeah, which 51s was, uh, and 50, yeah. And, 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 at, the start of the la- at the start of the race, I think they were doing 45s or 42s. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were sure. riding six seconds a lap slower or four, five, six seconds a lap slower sure. at and, the end of the, uh, the, the beginning. And Rossi was still doing 47s in, yeah. the, in the, the end of that race. In the final two laps, he was still inside the 47s, which is just astonishing how he was yeah. able to maintain that pace uh, all the way up until the end. Uh, uh, he said at the end it was one of his best victories of his career, and you know I really don't think that's uh, he's he's using hyperbole when he's when he says that, that because I think you know again it's another instance like Hareth where you're at a track usually which is a fantastic guide of of how well a rider is going to go through the year. You're also at uh, a track that has incredibly low grip, so it's a little bit more demanding uh, to approach and. You know, Rossi again was was the fastest man out there. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I think at this point now, I look at him as more of a championship threat than I did at this point last year because last year he had really had, hadn't showed that he was the fastest man in the world on his given day with you know his rival on on their given day. This year he's shown that he's faster than everyone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. if, if everything's if everything's right, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, he he really is faster than. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think he was asked in the press conference. Uh, Danny Pedrosa um, uh, co- commented about him um, saying, "I think that." Uh, well, Marquez said, "Obviously, this is the strongest Rossi I've ever seen." Um, when he's um, been in MotoGP, yeah, since he's been in Motor, since in he's been class, in MotoGP, in in yeah, which is basically since 2013. Yeah. Um, uh, Pedrosa said, uh, "You know, it, it, he's not quite as strong as he was in 2009, but uh, you know, you have to reckon that 2009 was was maybe the, the peak of his, yeah, uh, sure. his absolute peak. Sure. Um, but he's, you know, he's nearly there. Uh, so clearly, he is." Uh, yeah, I mean, and to do that at 37, to actually find the motivation to be able to do that at 37 is just absolutely astonishing. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, and, and again, it's all working on the details. It really is finding the little, every little detail, the fact that he's got a rider coach now to uh, to point him in a particular di- uh, direction, to, to, to point out all the tiny little bits which are which are missing and sure. uh, Let's find a qualifying strategy that works well for him yeah exactly wink, i think wink. also i think also the michelin yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yes that's right yes he's um um the the phone of friends strategy <laughs> the, yeah the beneficial phone of friends strategy with, yes uh, with him and his future teammate yes with it yes exactly uh, him and his, his future teammate um, whether they are working together or not i mean it, it's hard to say but they do tend to go out at the same time um and it works works well enough for both of them, so um, sure, fair sure. play. Okay, so that's pretty much everything from the MotoGP race. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the infamous reconciliation. Hi there. 
My name is David Emmett. If you've been enjoying the Paddock Pass podcast, make sure you follow us and like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. Okay, so as if uh, a great enough weight was not already placed on the, the, the Marquez and Rossi battle on Sunday, uh, we had a little bit of, uh, well, bad feeling, let's say, on Saturday after, after I think, Rossi made some, some comments about, uh, about the safety commission, about the changing of the layout of the track in Italian. Uh, maybe the weren't the best advised comments that he's ever made i mean uh, we're talking no. we're talking about one of the one of the smartest riders uh you know there is in the paddock and uh he, he decided to to make a slightly inappropriate job i think in marcus's direction nonetheless uh both of the riders made a, a bit of a, a peace offering in, in park for me uh there was a there was a handshake and the first real knowing gesture i think rossi's made in public at least to marcus yeah, since, yeah, yeah. Uh, since uh, as far as i know that's the first time he's actually acknowledged his existence sure exactly since basically since the pang because before Philip Island, maybe well, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah, yes, since mind you, maybe not even since the Pang, because um, uh, I don't remember whilst while Valentino was talking in the press conference as the Pang, I don't think he yeah, didn't no. look at him a single no. time. So I don't think he's actually looked at him uh, since then. But this was he actually. I thought that Mark went to Valentino, but other people said, including someone from Honda, said um, mm. uh, it was Valentino who sort of went over to Mark, but it was Mark who offered the hand, and then sure. uh, they sort of shook hands and things. Uh, I don't think that this is going to be. Um, they're going to be BFFs. Brevs. <laughs> um, for evs, for evs. No, I don't. Uh, I don't think so. I think it is. I mean, it was. Uh, it was a nice gesture. It was a nice gesture at the right time. Yeah, it was timely. For yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and perhaps it takes something like this to realise that. Um, okay, you hate the guy um, because. I mean, Valentino Rossi really, really does hate Mark Marquez sure. um, uh, for all the things that he's accused him of doing. Um, uh, but he realizes that you know there's it's there are worse things than than losing a championship. You can lose your life, yeah. and I think that uh, I think that made a uh, I think that made a big uh, a big impression on him. And so there was a, uh, uh, at least a peaceful coexistence, perhaps. Uh, in the future, will which will be nice, but um, but you have to imagine that both of these guys are, you know, as it looks, they're both going to be fighting for the world championship this year. Yeah, you know, and I, I can't see this really uh, if this is supposedly a, a makeup. Um, uh, you know, I kind of forget enough the differences of the past. I can't really see it lasting that. There's long. not going to be an intimate embrace, but in the uh, uh, in Park Ferme in Valencia. No, I, I can't see that. To be fair, yeah, but I think it was quite uh, quite telling after the. After the park for me, obviously they went to the podium and then they had the press conference afterwards. And Rossi mentioned there and he was asked about, you know, the, the relationship and he said something along the lines of, of recognizing that this wasn't the best way to focus his, uh, his concentration. Uh, yeah, exactly. He basically sort of said, you know, I'm all this energy. I'm focusing on, on, uh, on my laser like hatred of, uh, of Mark Marquez. <laughs> I'm much better focusing on trying to beat the little sod on, out on track. So, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, I, it, it was a very, very interesting interesting comment and i uh, like i said I, they're, they're not going to it, it wasn't a makeup moment it was just like okay yeah it, we're, we're 
can't we all just it was a Rodney King can't we all just get along <laughs> moment yeah sure uh, you don't have to like each other but you uh, uh, you could at least just leave out the um, the the bitterness and the nastiness yeah sure and then I think I think uh, Rossi was asked again after that you know is this a, a turning point for your relationship and he just gave a single one word answer yeah. you know with a kind of impish grin which suggested please don't ask me this question again <laughs> because you've already pushed your luck by asking me it two times. That's, yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. Your name is going in my little book. Yeah. and uh, I'll uh, be refusing you inter uh, interviews for the yes. next two years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I was speaking to someone today, actually, that, that used to work with Rossi in the past. Um, used to work with Rossi in the very early days of his career, Monty Fives and Tufties. Um, and we were talking, you know, about the atmosphere of MotoGP, how it's kind of changed for the worse in recent months, how there's a kind of acidic... Uh, you know, nasty atmosphere on the podium and, and, you know, in press conferences and things like that. And, uh, you know, I asked whether he thought that this, this, uh, this gesture had changed things. And he said that, you know, knowing Valentino Rossi throughout his whole career, the one thing that he is absolutely certain of is that Valentino Rossi never forgets. No, <laughs> no, you, <laughs> you, know. no you can be absolutely, I mean, the, the, there's the infamous, inc infamous, uh, incident at Qatar with Seti Gimeno mm -hmm. where, um, uh, Gibbonau, uh, I'm not even sure it was actually Gibbonau himself. It was either Gibbonau or Gibbonau's team, um, basically grasped Rossi up for cleaning their grid spot. Yeah. And so he was put to the back of the grid, uh, because the track at Qatar gets very, very dusty. It, it was worse in the past. Um, and he told him, you will never win a race again. Yeah. And said that he had acted with bastard like intentions. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great line, really. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Sometimes it's um, um, sometimes it's good that these people that they have English as a second language because <laughs> you get even more colourful uh, use of language. So absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it, it, this is um, uh, Sepang, supposed crimes at Phillip Island, the supposed crimes at uh, at, at Valencia. Um, they are not forgiven. They're not forgotten. Um, they, the, the, it's basically, uh, it's the neutral zone between North and South Korea. It is not, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the joyous coming together, which the European Union is. <laughs> Bear politics. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Very relevant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Right. So. So that's about everything we have to say for, for MotoGP for the time being. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss Moto2 and Moto3. Hey guys, it's Neil here, and this is just a quick reminder that if you use Twitter, make sure that you're following us at PaddockPassPod. Thank you very much. On with the show. So we had a fantastic MotoGP race, David, uh, on Sunday afternoon, but what preceded it was almost equally, equally as exciting. Uh, we had a fantastic Moto3 race to start the day off with a, a kind of frenetic eight-rider battle. Yeah. Um, and we saw a new winner. Is Jorge Navarro uh, Moto3's new star? Well, I mean, he's been... Um I know you really, really like uh, uh, Navarro. He's probably your favourite rider in Moto3. Um, uh, he's absolutely fantastic. Obviously, he bags and bags of talent, uh, and he's been so close to a win so many times. He was sort of, you know, kept on just missing out, just being robbed by whatever. Um, or And 
now he finally got a win. The, the, I mean, it was clear throughout the race. I mean, well, first of all, the, the, what I really liked about the, uh, about the race was the, the, the new layout actually suited Moto3 much better. It actually produced some really, really, um, that little, uh, little chicane turned into, uh, the, the, the Formula One chicane turned into quite a nice little place where, um, uh, there was sort of mo- typical Moto3 jostling for mm. positions. And it was clear throughout the race that, uh, Navarro was really, really strong. He had a really, really strong, um, uh, um, he, he was going to be in contention for the win um brad binder looks good as well but he didn't seem to quite have the iron grip on the front of the uh, front of the group that he did at Mugello, for example uh, uh in previous races yellow exactly uh, he was always sort of there or thereabouts uh um, but we also had you know a couple of new names gabriel rodrigo was mm-hmm. had a Absolutely fantastic race. Yeah, he's the best we've seen him. Yeah, yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, really showing his showing his ability. Yeah. But unfortunately, he also showed his teenage boyhood by being a little bit wild and um, uh, eventually nearly taking, uh, ending up nearly taking out Brad Binder uh, on the penultimate lap, two, three, two, three to go. I think. Yeah, sure, sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of the best. I think the best example of a, a gravel trap drop since Matteo Piscini crashed at oh, that same yeah. corner all the way back in 2007 or something yeah. like that. I think it was. You know, it was a proper kick in the dust kind of moment. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely, it yeah. was. It was. Uh, um, it was. A, it was classic, classic teenage them sure. uh, in all its glory. Sure. Um, I know we've spoken about the the class rookies in Moto Three this year a lot. Um, we've mentioned on several occasions just you know the strength and depth of, of some of the rookies that are there this year. Um, Catalonia uh, or the Circuit of Barcelona is obviously a track that's on the on the FIM Junior World Championship calendar um, and has been well for you know forever forever really yeah for sure and you could really see that with uh, I think in that, that front group you had uh, Carol Powie you had Aaron Canet uh, you had Bulaga um, you know several of the top names from the yeah. FIM World Championship last year or Junior World Championship last year that were they were up this year showing just how good they are around the circuit where they actually have a bit of experience, a bit of knowledge, uh, know how to set the bike up and what's needed and what's required for, for a lot of the, a lot of the corners there. Um, so that also added a bit of color to the battle. Um, but, but essentially you, you already touched on it. Uh, Rodrigo's move on Binder. Which was a little bit, uh, yeah, it, it, it was on the border of, uh, of what, yeah, exactly. what's correct and it, it what's was wrong. Just, it was just hot headed. He got sure. in too hot. He clipped the back of, um, of Binder, uh, of Binder's bike. Binder's, the save by Binder was absolutely epic. It yeah. was absolutely, I mean, it was, uh, he had the rear sliding like Marquez in MotoGP. Sure. And he still, you know, hung on to it and got it straightened up. Sure. And I think you, you asked him afterwards, you give a great reply. You asked, him um, you know how lucky were you just you know luck was really on your side you were able to stay on you said I don't know why it's lucky with a rider riding into the side of you <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yes yeah I still um, I, um, I think I still have the burn marks from the look that he gave me when I asked him if he was if he was lucky um, uh, and deservedly but yeah I mean it, it was a fantastic ride to stay on not only did he stay on but he also got back to uh, yeah to take second which is just just astonishing I yeah. mean uh, Navarro deserved that win. Uh, he did everything right. Binder, I think, was just a fraction weaker. And because he was a fraction weaker, he ended up being in the situation to be knocked off by, uh, by, uh, uh, a wild and out of control, um, um, uh, Rodrigo. Sure. And, um, uh, but was still strong enough to come back and, and uh, come second. It was a, I mean, it, uh, 
Brad Binder said afterwards it was like a win. Yeah. Um, because taking second, and he only loses five uh, five points to uh, Navarro. But the trouble is, once um, you saw exactly the same with Brad Binder, where Brad Binder was another rider who's been waiting for a win for a long time, and then all of a sudden, like buses three come along at the same time. Sure. Um, so you've got to think that that uh, Jorge is going to uh, is going to get start collecting a, a few more wins. Absolutely, yeah. And I think Jorge had a really strong showing in Iceland last year, which is yeah. the next track on the calendar. Then you look at uh, at Saxon Ring and Danny Kent just cleared off into the distance there last year. Um, so, you know, the omens are there that, you know, Jorge can, can start, uh, you know, racking up a couple of very, very strong showings uh, before the summer break. Yeah. To maybe, uh, maybe put a little bit more pressure on uh, on Brad uh, going forward. Yeah. In terms of the Moto3 Championship, I know, I think Fnati now is quite a quite a substantial bit behind the front too. Is this a two-way race or can you still see Fnati coming back into this? Uh, well, it's Moto3. It's Moto um, uh, anything can happen in Moto3. Um, and again, it's race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cliche. Well, it, there's a reason cliches exist. It's because they generally represent a truth, and the, the reason they're called cliches is because they're just worn down completely from overuse. Um, but anything can happen, and we're only on race seven. There are eleven races left in the championship, and eleven races are a lot, a sure. lot of racing. Yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of racing. Um, so it's because again, Fanati is still blowing hot and cold. Uh, Fanati, um, you can you either expect him to win or expect him to crash or finish thirteenth or do something else. Um, but uh, Navarro and Binder are there every week in week yeah. out. You know, you know the last couple of laps. The uh, you, you don't have to look very far down the timing screens to find their names, okay. and that's the difference between being a championship contender and uh, and not being a champion a championship contender. Aaron Canet mm. getting on the podium as well. Mm. Uh, did Bastion, he not? Bastianini. Oh, was it Bastianini? That's right. But again, again, Canet was close sure. all the way there. Sure. That's right. Yeah, Bastianini. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I thought Canet got on the yeah. got on the podium. But first podium of the season for Bastianini. Yes. You know, a, a kind of reminder of the wonderful talent that he is. Yeah. Uh, I think many of us were expecting, uh, you know, he, he was never quite the same, was he, after um, after Aragon last year, whenever no. it was kind of, it became known that he was angling for a move to go to the Australia Galicia team. Yeah. He kind of wanted out of the of the, the junior, of Grissini's Moto3 yeah. setup to go in with Al Samora's lot. And really from there, he, he was never the he was never quite the same in that, that title running. And he obviously lost a lot of ground to uh, yeah. Oliveira and Kent. Um, and then the start of this season, he just didn't seem comfortable with that, the new Honda. And obviously got injured before Le Mans, but he came back, he got his first Moto2 Moto three podium in Barcelona. Uh, yes, he scored a podium there last year. Also, um, he likes the track, but it's great to see Bastianini back because he's a guy that on the day, on his day, you know, will be winning races. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, again, it he seemed to get a little bit sidetracked by sort of circumstances, uh, and as you say, you know, like Aragon last year when there was talk of him going to um, uh, wanting to switch to the Estrella Galicia team. Um, it, it sort of puts people it, it detracts from your attention because I mean like afterwards um, Danny Kent towards the end of last year while there was all this talk about Danny Kent maybe going straight to Pramac for the, for MotoGP he was saying no no it's not a distraction at all and plummeting down the um, uh, down the championship table as he kept on having terrible results after completely dominating the first half of the season mm. um, everyone says oh no it doesn't affect me it doesn't affect me I'm fine I'm, you know out there I'm just concentrating on racing and then when you speak to them afterwards I mean Danny Kent at the end of the, towards the end of the last week he said yeah yeah all that title talk it was really starting to do um, 
uh, really starting to, to to be a bit of too much of a distraction. It, it was hard to concentrate. Yeah. So I thought, so maybe this is the same with Bastianini now that Bastianini's there. And you know, Bastianini was a guy that I I tipped to be in the championship battle uh, at the start of the year. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's good to have him back up and around the front. Uh, also, um, moving on to Moto Two, um, not quite as spectacular a race. Uh, it was quite, still a strong race. It was, though. It was still, a, still a fascinating race. I yeah. think up until the final four or five laps, we were we were really thinking that it was going to be a two a two way slog. Yeah. Um, and then Johan Zarco did you know what he did so brilliantly at many occasions last year, just put the hammer down with four or five laps to go and you know reel off a you know a couple of really brilliant consistent laps. Yeah. And no one can live with him. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, uh, what was his winning, Martin? So it was like three or four seconds in the yeah, last. Uh, sure, yeah, it, it was, was it, very mean, substantial. Yeah, Shuffle of paper alert, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was in the end. Yeah, it's all right. No, I mean, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, in four or five laps, he put he put a great big hole into um, uh, into Alex Rince. Um The two of them looked really, really strong. It was clear. I mean, they were the class of the field on that day. Um, the weekend as well. Yeah, exactly. And it was clear also because the, the, the two of them also had fairly close ties to, to Louis Salon. They both really wanted to win mm. for Salon. Sure. Um, I think they were both perfectly happy to, um, they were happy as long as one or, one or the other one. Um, Zarco, Zarco was, just really, just the class of the field. Really, really, it was an, it was a very impressive win. Yeah, uh, Rince also really, really strong ride. They were a long, a long way in front, uh, in front of the rest. Luti looked like he was going to get on the podium, but uh, started going backwards. And Nakagami got onto the podium. I, I was quite pleased with that because Nakagami, again, a rider who blows hot and cold, and mm. um, but really looked strong towards the second in, in the second half of the race, especially the last few laps. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I think last year Barcelona was the first time really where I thought, okay, Zarco looks like he can go all the way to be champion because he, you know, three way five for the lead uh, in the final lap, and I think he managed to dispose of two riders in front of him. Uh, Rins was definitely one of them, and uh, went on to win. And you know, he just showed that class towards the end of the race again uh, on Sunday. And I must admit, I kind of wrote Zarco off after uh, after Le Mans because he had a bad race in Arath. He crashed out of his home race in Le Mans. Uh, I spoke to someone from his team after that, and they said basically. He just he couldn't deal with getting a bad start and the whole pressure of being at home in front of his yeah. own fans got to him and I kind of thought well you know that's not a good sign for a world champion to be so clearly affected by that yeah. uh, but really his performance in Mugello okay he was a little bit lucky that the race was stopped and then restarted over a shorter a shorter distance yeah. but he was fantastic in that race and then again here in Barcelona I think yeah I mean it, 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 if you look at Mugello what you have to say is that if the race hadn't been stopped and restarted then maybe Sam Lowe's would have won with uh, with, uh, oh, yeah. with 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 Johan Zarco second sure um, but uh, here there was just absolutely no question about who was who was going to be uh, who was going to be champion exactly who's going to be who's going to win the race <laughs> sure exactly yeah and all of a sudden we have all three riders uh, Rins Lowe's and Zarco within 10 points of each other yeah so yes the, the uh, yes my, my prediction after Le Mans that Zarco was out of it out of the running uh, was, was very 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 premature yeah. shows just what I know yes <laughs> so exactly. Exactly. well it is, it is very tempting to write riders off but then you it do uh, the, then you sort of like look oh wait hang on wait a minute right, round six round seven round eight it's not uh, uh, there's still a lot of racing to go it's one of the darn things about having this podcast you're actually you're on record exactly this stuff as well, that's you know? right you can't just pretend oh, I didn't say that that yeah. was him yeah that yeah, was that exactly. other guy yeah, yeah. sure 
Uh, okay, right, fantastic. So we were back at we were back at the, the circuit of Barcelona this afternoon, Monday afternoon after the race. Yeah. Uh, there was a post race test. Uh, pretty much everyone was out there, bar I think the Aspar Ducatis. Yeah. So we had more or less a full motor. I was also surprised not to see uh, Michele Piro testing, but I think sure. the, you know basically he was he was on a GP fourteen point two. Uh, on Sunday and then to jump off that and jump onto mm. a GP16 to sure. do more development work it's just too confusing yeah sure and, and he, he does so many laps anyway exactly exactly yeah um, so what did we learn from uh, from the post-race test Michelin were there with uh, with some new rear tyres three new rear tyres yeah uh, some new front tyres as well yeah I think there was one one new front tyre and three new rear tyres basically they were trialling a new construction uh, a modified construction um, of the rear tyre um, which I think is a little bit more stable. Uh, again, it's about providing a little bit more stability to be able to use with softer rubber. Um, it was, it's, I don't think it's going to be a race tire. It's going to be a, uh, a qualifying tire or a, uh, or an early morning tire. Um, riders will like it. It gave more traction. They were pleased with it. Mm. Um, uh, went quite well. There was a, there was lots of new bits on display. Mm. Uh, Yamaha tried a new chassis and then whenever we, well we asked both Valentino and um, Jorge what was it like and they said yes um, <laughs> they were very um, uh, top secret uh, they were very very secretive about it yeah it goes faster everywhere or it's, uh, I think Rossi's comment was very uh, enigmatic he said you know uh, what do you expect from a new chassis you want the uh, improvements in every place exactly. yeah, in every place yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly Honda had um, you know it's quite notable for the last couple of weeks Mark has almost been pinning his hopes on what Honda were going to bring to the Barcelona test uh, and he was a little bit disappointed that Honda had a new exhaust and new chassis I think that he was testing and on the whole, he said that um, I read his comments in Spanish afterwards. Uh, he said that if he had the race tomorrow, uh, he would choose what he ran on Sunday rather than what he tested. Today. Exactly. Well, what, what he what he said in English was um, he was uh, the, but the the exhaust was different. Was it better? The exhaust was different. <laughs> Which basically means no. Was Livio um, Super giving him a death glare by chance? Uh, <laughs> he was too this. far away to be able to affect him. Right. He was having things thrown at him out of the back of the LCR truck by Cal Crutchlow. <laughs> um, uh, he also said, had the new chassis, it didn't like the new chassis. The new chassis was better in one place, but worse in others. Overall, it was worse. But there were some ideas in that new chassis that he could use with the existing chassis to actually improve it. Mm. Um, uh, so that was good. But I mean, it's interesting you say that he pinned his hopes on this test because this test was the uh, it was the, the the place where his season turned around last year. Uh, I think between in the first six races of 2015, he crashed three times. Yeah, three times. Yeah, exactly. So he crashed out of half the races. Um, and they finally figured something out which allowed him to be competitive um, uh, after Barcelona. We went to Assen and um, he fought all the way with Valentino Rossi to um, uh, uh, to the end. Yeah, and then cleared off at Saxering by a mile yeah. and, you know, suddenly looked like the, the Marquez of old again. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think he was hoping for a similar transformation. Um, I think they found some improvements. But uh, then again, I mean, uh, Cal Crutchlow on... Uh, Sunday said that uh, at the start of the season, uh, Qatar, uh, Argentina, Austin, uh, especially if you look at Qatar, the Yamahas were just blasting straight yeah. past the Hondas. You look at Argentina, you saw Vinales on the Suzuki in the first lap swamp Marquez yeah. along with other bikes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, they were just getting completely murdered on top speed. They found some electronics bits and pieces to give them a little bit more drive. Yeah. And that's made a huge difference because, I mean, yeah, they, the, the, the Honda was... Uh, Easily capable of yeah. matching, uh, of ma well, it was much better than the Suzuki, and it was matching the Yamahas, yeah. and uh, so the, the, that was already been a big. Uh, it's already been a big, uh, a big difference. Exactly, and we were seeing on in the race on Sunday that Marquez was passing the Yamaha even before they got to the braking area. Yeah, uh, just through a bit of slipstream and then down the street. So they've obviously found some extra, you know, they've found a way to, to program those electronics to get them a little bit smoother coming out of the corners and acceleration, just yeah, optimizing exactly. it further. I, I think they, uh, you know, they're finally starting to throw throw the resources they need at the mm. uh, at the electronic setup. Yeah. And uh, they're starting to get to grips, uh, starting to get to grips with it. So, you know, they're, they're going to get better and better until, uh, and especially now that we've got... Um, uh, Three weeks between races for the next uh, for the next two or three races, it gives uh, HRC uh, longer to look at the data, to examine the data, to go through all the various permutations and and, and tweak it and find the the little bits of uh, little, little bits of advantage which will make them more competitive. So, yeah, I mean, um, very positive. Well, not positive for Mark. Uh, it wasn't what Mark uh, Marquez was hoping for. Um, but I think overall there's more of a, a general sense of progress, whereas last, uh, you know, what happened last year was it was awful and then there was a turnaround at Barcelona. Now, like, it started off awful and it's been getting a little bit better, a little bit better mm. um, throughout. And so there's a, a, there is at least light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. Um, the Suzuki was interesting but confusing because uh, Vinales tried the... the they tested a an evolution of the 2016 chassis at Valencia uh, Vinales loved it this tested is, again this is before the race this was before the exactly this is before the uh, before the race at Barcelona they had a private test uh, they loved the um, uh, um, uh, Vinales loved the new chassis but didn't race it um, uh, tried it again on Monday and absolutely loved it uh, Espargaro had loved it at Valencia um, raced it raced it didn't yeah disastrous weekend yeah one of the worst Home GPs of his life, he said. Yeah, exactly. Hated the uh, hated it in the race. Went back to the 2015 chassis and said, "I should have stuck with this all the time." Sure, so sure. Uh, th th there is, I mean, it, the, it's a confusing situation in the Suzuki anyway. Both riders are leaving. Um, Suzuki have to do some development because they've got new riders coming in 2000, uh, 2017. Um, obviously, we'll have to we'll, we'll come to who that might mm. be later on, but uh, they you know they've got to do development, but they're doing it with two different riders who are leaving, and so they are the and especially uh, Aleish Espargaro is not particularly committed to Suzuki uh, in the same way because he feels a little bit betrayed the fact that he's done so much work for them yeah, sure. and has been cast aside. Sure, uh, and it's you know Aleish is a is a fantastic rider. Um, but you could you could almost say at the start of the year that you know, listen to Maverick's comments throughout preseason. Maverick knew that the the 2015 chassis he had the choice between the 16 and the 15. Vinales knew that the 15 was the way to go. He went straight for it and was absolutely convinced. Well, not absolutely convinced, but more sure that that was the way to go in the first rounds. It took Alish a few rounds to come around to that way of thinking before thinking before realizing okay this is actually the better of the two and again here we've seen a little bit of you know maybe just not having that absolute total conviction uh with the with the correct development path maybe that's maybe that's been a little bit harsh yeah well yeah I mean it, it, it's difficult to, say. to me I think it's more um uh, Alish is a little bit impetuous 
Um, he's, I mean, he, as a character, he's very, very active. God, transcribing um, uh, his media debriefs is a nightmare because he speaks at, at about a trillion miles an hour. Mm. Um, I think his, uh, I think his, the audio on his debrief is actually redshifted. Um, I think he leaps into decisions. In, he he sort of leaps in with both with both feet without sort of with both feet without sort of sitting back and thinking about it carefully. He decides what he's going to do and goes for it, and then um, uh, doesn't weigh it up and consider it as much as he uh, as much as he could. But mm. um, uh, I know he's crucial. Uh, Tom O'Kane's very very positive oh, yeah, about it. Very uh, high uh, of him, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's perhaps the the yin that at least is like yang. Yang, now, yeah, it's, it's a very exactly. calm, you know, thoughtful presence. Uh, whereas Ali, as you say, is a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. Um, but you, you touched on it already. Um, it looks like he's going to be off. There was, he obviously spoke in the, the press conference on Thursday before the whole event kicked off saying that it, you know, he kind of took Suzuki to town really. Yeah. Uh, speaking in public and saying he was very upset, doesn't feel loved, doesn't feel like he's been appreciated, all the work that he's put in. Uh, and we've, you know, kind of reason to believe that, uh, that he will be on his way and he's found, uh, he's found, uh, you know, quite a, quite a, I'm sure, decent suitor. Uh, to take him going forward into 2017. Yeah, exactly. Well, he said he said in the press conference that you know he had uh, he had a number of options. He had um, uh, um, both inside and outside the paddock. Um, he can go back to Aspar, which he called the best private team in the in the paddock. Mm. Uh, he was in love with Aspar, um, um, obviously from his time on the uh, on the CRT bike when he basically just completely ruled that class. Yeah. Um, he has an offer from, uh, or well, uh, yeah, he's talking to Aprilia. Uh, he has the possibility to go to Aprilia to take on the development role there alongside um, uh, Sam Lowe's. Uh, he also has a couple of um, factory options in World Superbikes. I mean, it would, not that I want to get rid of Alicia Espargaro because I actually like him as a sort of as a personality, but I think he'd be absolutely fantastic in in World Superbikes. He'd, he would liven uh, liven it up no end over there. Mm. Um, um, but but you don't really expect him to do that, do you? No. If no. you if he's got an, if if he's got an offer to stay with Aprilia. Um, then I think he's going to go to Aprilia because the I mean the, uh, Aprilia made a lot of have made a lot of progress. The the the, the bike itself is actually quite good. The the, the, the main problem was uh, is horsepower. In this week's race, uh, in the race of Barcelona, they actually benefited from not having very much horsepower. I, I was, mm. Someone told me that. Um, uh, well, someone with links to Aprilia told me that um, uh, uh, the bike produces 245 horsepower. Mm. Um, and given that their numbers being banded around for uh, for Ducati are sort of 270, 275, 280. Yeah, depending on which Ducati it yeah. is, you know, whether it's the 14, 15 or 16. That is a that is quite the stable mm. full of ponies, which yeah. uh, which is missing. Absolutely. But um, Alvaro Bautista had a fantastic mm. race. His place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because he wasn't burning up his tower, uh, his rear tower with all sure. those with all the extra horsepower. Sure, sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was speaking to Eugene Laverty on Sunday evening, and he was saying that in the first lap he made a good start, but you know was the victim of some very, very not suspect but overly eager, let's say, yeah. uh, uh, enthusiastic, over, yeah, overly enthusiastic uh, overtaking moves. And he was saying that um, watching certain riders on the first lap. Certain riders that had pushed him out or, you know, kind of roughed him up a little bit. He said he could pretty much 
tell on the second lap who was going to have severe tire issues on the um, on you know later in the race and those were riders with uh, a little bit more enthusiastic throttle um, throttle application let's say and a, and a little bit more uh, blue smoke coming off the rear tire exactly yeah yeah a few of those were were perhaps uh, were perhaps bikes and uh, Ducatis that are a little bit more powerful than, than as you say the Aprilia yeah uh, absolutely yes yeah. so Alish uh, his future is not confirmed yet but his little brother uh, Paul his future was confirmed on Thursday. He announced that he's going to be racing in KTM colors in 2017 and 18. Uh, that's going to be the same tech line. That's going to be the same tech three lineup that there's been for the past three years now in KTM colors. Yeah. Um, alongside Bradley Smith, do you think that is a that's a good signing for KTM? Uh, I think it's certainly an interesting signing. Uh, uh, we all assumed that uh, because I think uh, Stefan Pierre had said. Um, they were looking to motor two. What they, they were looking, basically looking to do what um, Suzuki, Suzuki had done. done. Yeah, exactly. Which is take a young rider um, and put um, uh, take a rookie, uh, you know, talented rookie, and uh, put him on the bike next to an, uh, an experienced rider. Um, but I think they couldn't find a talented uh, or a a clearly talented enough uh, rookie to get on the bike. Um, it looks like Alex Rince is going to be with uh, Suzuki. The uh, it seems to be basically a matter of details. Sure. Uh, I asked David Brivio about it today, and he sort of said, "Well, it's clear what our preference is." He wouldn't say what what the preference was, but he did say it's clear what the preference is. And the way that Alex uh, was talking about um, uh, was talking about Suzuki, the preference was not Alex. Sure. Um, uh, so uh, I think Brad, to come back to Paul Aspargaro, they took they decided to take two um, uh, experienced riders, two riders who've been together. Bradley had a fantastic explanation about it. Take basically the best satellite rider from last year and the best and the best satellite rider from this year, put them together. They both been riding the same bike. Yeah. They both have similar setups. Sure. Um, uh, they know what a fast moto uh, MotoGP bike is like because the yeah. Yamaha is. Is basically the best uh, the the best package on the grid. Yep. Um, even the even the satellite bike is still um, one of the best packages. It's certainly the best satellite package on sure. the on the grid. And he also said the example of uh, of look at what they did in the Suzuki Adar last year yeah. together. Um, okay, that was a you know a very 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 trick bit of machinery that they were racing, but they only had two three days to test it in Suzuki beforehand. Yeah. Uh, very limited amount of time. They basically get to work together there uh, as a team. You know, you know, Bradley and, and Paul's mutual dislike was kind of you know well uh, uh, well publicised in the past. But yeah. uh, but then in that instance, they they developed a, a race winning bike uh, together, and um, you know, and, and you have to say that again, the the Yamaha is a is a fantastic package. And I think Paul really, aside from uh, from the top three um, in the championship, maybe Vinales as well. I would say Paul's probably one of the most impressive riders that we've seen this year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, he, he's got on with the um, um, he's got on with the Michelin's really well. He, he gets on with his with with this year's Yamaha better than last year. Um, and he's yeah. he's just doing what Bradley was doing last year. Yeah, it's you know accepting his limitations that he's not able to take it to the absolute maximum and challenge for podiums. Right. And you can see that sometimes that really pains him, that really pisses him yeah. off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the same time, rather than doing silly things, trying to catch that podium, yeah. he knows that basically, okay, fifth place, that's my limit. Yeah. Okay, I might be 25 seconds off the leader. 
that's the limit that I have. And uh, you know, he's he's basically bringing it home this year. And I think you know, Paul's been Paul's been Paul's been uh, Paul's been very impressive. And I think you know, he's a great signing for KTM. And what, yeah, what, exactly. And what a lineup! Like at the start of this year, I really didn't expect KTM to go into 2017 with a stronger lineup as that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you have to believe that the bike will be good. You see what they've done in Moto Three. Uh, there were is a little bit of a there's a little bit of an issue. Um, with, uh, or, well, there, there's a little bit of a concern. There was certainly a concern which Paul expressed about the, uh, steel trellis frame. Mm. Uh, but really his concern was, you know, no one else is running, running it. So how do I know it's any good? That is a typical, um, uh, rider concern. I want what he's got. Uh, the, the typical kind of conservatism, which, you know, which you get with lots of things, which is why everyone ends up on the same suspension, everyone mm. ends up on the same brakes, because no one wants to invest in uh, actually trying something a little bit different. KTM are going to do it. Um, uh, they should have loads and loads of horsepower. Uh, the n- numbers already being bandied about are a little bit ridiculous. So uh, I think 285 was the number I'd heard, oh, really? wow. which is... Um, what? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's candy level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're, yeah, that's right. They're, they're going to outdrag Ducati. Uh, of course, there's only usually one long straight, but lots and lots of corners. So the it'll be about how it get, gets around the corners, which actually makes a difference. But um, yeah, I think Paul and Bradley, uh, Paul and Bradley on KTM is uh, it, it's a really strong lineup. Also, in terms of publicity, they're both you know young, fun. Uh, the 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 videos which Tech Three. Make um, uh, it's worth ch- uh, following the Tech Three uh, the Tech Three team on Twitter because or on Facebook uh, because they put together some uh, really fun little videos for uh, promotional videos and stuff. Um, it, you've got to think that's going to well, you've got to think that that's going to continue. Um, but then they'll have the power of the Red Bull Media House behind them, uh, and it's going to be. You know, well, Red Bull has got so much money that it's got its own space program because the the the, the, the fellow who jumped out of space with, with with a parachute, and it's got its own air force. They've got a couple yeah. of uh, sort of trainer jets. So, um, uh, yeah, you've got to think they've got to be able to put something entertaining together to uh, uh, to, to help push the brand. So, sure. Yeah. Do they have their own motorcycle racing podcast? That is the question. And if they <laughs> and if they don't, would they? I wonder would they be willing to put some money in the direction of uh, of a know. certain motorcycle racing podcast? <laughs> Who knows? I uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not you. sure. Yes, that's right. Yeah, could be very dangerous if we were suddenly fueled by energy drinks. <laughs> that would be uh, uh, that, that that might be a might be a bridge too far. We'll we'll have to wait and see. Okay, right. So speaking of energy, yes, yes, mine, mine is fading. Oh yeah, it's. Part Last midnight here in Spain. As, so, as um, I'm sure yours is as well, David. I think we'll wrap it up there unless yep. you have anything else you want to say. No. 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 Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much, David, for joining us for this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Thank you very much for hosting this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. I believe we'll be back very soon. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, Steve English and Tony Goldsmith are both on the island, uh, the Isle of Man for the TT this week. Uh, there should be a podcast with both of those gentlemen regarding the TT and everything that's been going on on the island up within the next couple of days or maybe within the next week I'm not sure uh, but thank you very much for your company yes thank you and if you uh, uh, follow the Paddock Pass if you've enjoyed this and this podcast and you use iTunes make sure you rate us and leave a uh, comment and tell the rest of the world as it it does make it a lot easier for other people to find it um, and so share uh, share the good news of Paddock Pass podcast 
Okay, so thanks everyone for joining. We'll see you next time. Hi there, my name is David Emmett. If you've been enjoying the Paddock Pass podcast, make sure you follow us and like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. At least I hope that's what the fucking URL is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you hear a robotic voice after facebook.com yes. slash, <laughs> you'll know what's happened. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh, as if uh, as if.